Welcome to Oh God, What Now, the politics podcast that's proud to be forcibly ejected from the main stage. On today's show, Rishi Sunak derails HS2, Swella Braveman rails against luxury beliefs, and Liz Truss assails from the sidelines. We unpack a bonkers Tory party conference. Plus, can politicians prove they respect voters, and how much do we respect them? Maureen Commons' Luke Trill is with us to try and find an answer. And in the extra bit for Patreon backers, Vincent van Gogh's work is being augmented by AI and VR at the Musée d'Orsay in Paris. Any approach to art appreciation or no oil painting? Let's meet the panel. Hannah Fern is a columnist and journalist focused on social affairs. Hello, Hannah. Hello. Hannah, the second module of the COVID inquiry began yesterday, rather lost in the fog of the Tory conference. And already there is some really quite disturbing evidence emerging. What caught your eye? Well, three things really caught my eye, none of which are entirely surprising, Uh but nevertheless depressing and quite infuriating. The first is that we hear that Boris Johnson apparently first referred to long COVID when it was first emerging and doctors were talking about what they're witnessing as, and I quote, bollocks. So for everybody who has suffered with that, who is supporting a partner who's dealing with that, for all the doctors who've spent hours working with their surgeries on patients who are really struggling, um, and frankly, given we're talking about the conference this week and the benefit system and people being told they should get back to work, there's a huge number of people claiming long-term sick because of this. It's not bollocks. And to hear your former Prime Minister, Prime Minister at the time, using that kind of language is just... I mean, it tells you everything sure, about the situation. Are we, we sure he's not going to pop up and claim that he meant Bolax, <laughs> the, the Roman god of pestilence? <laughs> exactly. Um, so two other points, both of which came out of Patrick Valance's diaries, which he submitted to the inquiry. Um, oh, the I quite first, like Patrick Valance. <laughs> Valance, yes. He witnessed what he described as two things. The first was what he, it's not language I'd use, but this is quoting from his diary, bipolar decision-making in number 10, where they're flip-flopping all the time on how to approach social distancing, lockdown um, strength uh, and, uh, you know, length of period of time and and so on. They just couldn't make a decision. They were going from one day to the next. Different Mm, views mm. were were being picked out. Secondly, he said that... um, And this is kind of the the most troubling thing, that they were cherry picking the science to support what they wanted to do. So every time they stood up and said, we are guided by the science, we are guided by what um, Sage is telling us, actually... The truth is they were picking and choosing what they thought was the most useful to make their political case. And finally, and I think we did know this, but to see it in black and white uh, and discussed at the inquiry, there were factions inside number 10, um, not between the scientists. We're not talking about a, uh, you know, a split between scientists in, and how to interpret the data from the time. We're talking about political factions inside number 10 arguing between themselves about what to do instead of just following the full guidance from scientists. Mm. So put all those together, I think, you know, there's a long time to go in the inquiry. Much more will be unraveled and revealed, but that's an indication of the quality of leadership that we had at that time, in case we were in any doubt. Mm. Yes, I think um, uh, I was rather taken by Cummings' um, text to an official saying Boris doesn't think it's a big deal, he doesn't think anything can be done, and then a senior official writing... I think this country is headed for disaster. I think we're going to kill thousands of people. Matt Green is a soon-to-be touring comedian and viral Twitter sensation. And uh, yes, we're still calling it. I'm never going to call it X. Hello, Matt. Hello, how are you doing? (laughs) Matt, it took Kevin McCarthy a record 15 votes to become House Speaker for the Republicans. But it took the the Republicans only one vote... (laughs) to remove him less than nine months later. What is going on? Well, I think essentially the Republican Party is making the current Tory party look like a bastion of unity and togetherness. (laughs) And essentially, Kevin McCarthy is just very, very bad at politics, it turns out, because he couldn't... Well, he's got a very difficult situation. He gave a great press conference that I thought liberated. Yeah, Ah, well. (laughs) Liberated from the burden of any kind of responsibility. He was terrific. Yeah, and and that's because he's got a very small margin of error in the um, House of Representatives. And um, unfortunately, he's got this House Freedom Caucus who are very far-right group of um, representatives who basically just want to shut the government down. That's their main thing. They want to stop Biden being able to do anything. Um, And they agreed when they finally allowed him to become Speaker that they would have the right to, if he did anything they didn't like, 
to have just one person could call for a motion to um, vacate the speakership, as it's called, and he did something they didn't like. Uh, and that happened. Uh, that wasn't and, smart in retrospect, was it? No, and, and the thing, it was always going to happen. And the question is, you know, how long it took. And he's been there, I think, nine months. So he's done all right in a way. Um, you know, it could have been nine minutes based on how much they wanted to get rid of him. But the main thing really is that they 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 passed this continuing resolution to keep the government open, to stop a government shutdown. And then he went on TV saying it was the Democrats' fault that there'd been so many problems with mm-hmm. it, despite the fact the Democrats were the people who had voted for it and the Republicans had not voted for it in large numbers. And so essentially the Democrats were there going, well, hang on, we helped you out and now you're shitting on us and telling us that it's our fault. So why would we back you again? And that's what's happened. Um, I think we could import that. One letter to the 1922 yeah. committee and it's a leadership challenge. Um, our guest this week is director of the think tank More in Common. He's identified the word most frequently used to describe the UK since the start of the year. No gold stars for guessing it, though. Shambles. <laughs> This brave man is fresh from the Tory conference, where he's just shared a stage with Esther McVeigh and Matt Goodwin. Hello, Luke Trill. (laughs) (laughs) Nice to be here again. Luke, from the outside, the conference looked extremely chaotic and weirdly depressed at the same time. Although less so than last year's, I have to say, I think one Tory activist Um, remarked, if last year was the death, this year was the funeral. Um, But you seem to have had an intellectually stimulating time. What what did you get up to? Well, I think you're right, um, that it was a very strange conference. Um, When we were there last year, when Liz Truss was unravelling her mini budget in real time, there was this sort of sense of, it was sort of a sense of mania uh, there Mm -hmm. um, at the time. Uh, This year was very different in the sense that there seemed to be a bit more of a resignation amongst the attendees there, this sense that actually, you know, Rishi hasn't turned things around, that the polls aren't narrowing in the way lots of Tories hope that they would by now. And so you started to get this beauty contest um, emerging at the conference. You had Suella in typical uh, Suella style, throwing a lot of red meat. Obviously, you had Kemi making her pitch, Penny Mordaunt uh, today, uh, introducing Rishi Sunak. And it, it looked and felt at the conference that this was a party readying itself for opposition and readying to have that debate about the soul of the party. And in fact, one of our events with Matt Goodwin and Esther McVeigh, but also David Gork um, and Samuel Kusamu from the other yeah. uh, wing of the party, they were they were debating, we were debating, look, which way should the party go? Does it go down that NatCon route, which um, you know, a big group of MPs would like to see them do? Or actually, would they be better positioned by pitching themselves, you know, in a sort of David Cameron 2.0 style, trying to detoxify? Certainly what I picked up, the mood of the conference isn't moving towards a new version of liberal conservatism. I think, you know, the next leader is likely to be from the right of the party. But I think what's up for grabs is how from the right, right of which party? <laughs> That's the question. Look, it's a question. And I, you know, I have to say, you know, someone who is, you know, been a member of the Conservative Party for an embarrassingly uh, long time, the notion of sharing uh, the party with Nigel Farage, which was one of the things which was suggested at the um, conference, fills me with horror, um, mm. really. And I think and the Conservative Party have to realise, in 2019, they won not just because they got backbone Conservatives to back them, but they also got Liberal Conservatives who didn't like um, Jeremy Corbyn, but were Remainers. And the danger is there's only so much that that group will take, yeah. Yeah. particularly yeah. when, you know, Keir Starmer isn't Jeremy Corbyn. He may have his faults. And so if you push them, there are a whole swathe of seats that suddenly come into play for Labour and the Liberal Democrats. Mm. And I think that's that's actually always the case. I, the, there's always a lot of debate of what precisely swing is needed for a one-seat majority, but it never happens like that. It's sort of like a floodgate. When one seat goes, a whole bunch of them tend to go. We'll see. First this week, Rishi Sunak's speech, delivered just a few hours ago as we record, railed against our broken politics and promised to fix it. Indeed claimed he is the only man who can. 
a soupçon of migrant bashing, a dollop of transphobia and a sprinkling of benefit claimant and disabled people bashing, has Sunak found the perfect Tory recipe. Suella Braveman, meanwhile, headlined the day before with a sequel to her stateside homophobic and racist rant, tagline, too fash, too spurious. A venomous diatribe describing everything from the Human Rights Act to net zero as luxury beliefs and warning of an immigration hurricane. This pod's very own Marie Leconte reported on Tuesday that the last chopper out of Saigon, a.k.a. the last train from Manchester to London before strikes began, had been cancelled. <laughs> if only there were some sort of high-speed rail link. Hannah, after days of the HS2 Birmingham to Manchester phase being Schrodinger's rail, basically. Rishi Sunak finally opened the box and confirmed it was dead. Um, But apparently all is fine because the trains will just join the already at-capacity non-high-speed line to Manchester. Now, you come from a family of railway men. In fact, your dad had a long career at British Rail and Irish Rail and actually was part of the government's Williams Rail Review panel. Yes, he was. Um, Does this policy make any sense whatsoever? Uh, no. Before I say anything else, I just want to say these are my views, not my dad's. <laughs> but, okay. but I just say that because obviously it's informed by what I hear, right, but right. Uh, he still does some work for the DOT, so I don't want to implicate him in any way. But this is entirely nonsense. Quite literally, many of the arguments he made in favour of scrapping don't stand up. Uh, he says that, as you say, we can just put the extra capacity on the existing lines. The electrification programme will increase the capacity of those lines. That's not true. The entire HS2 project was propping up a lot of the other um, improvements to rail connections in the north um, and the Midlands that he says he's still committed to and that he describes as part of this great £36 billion boost that um, mm. that cancelling HS2 would create. You need the extra platforms, station redesigns that were part of the HS2 project. Um, Electrification, which he really jumped on as a great bonus, is already happening. It's already fully funded. Much of it is already fully underway. Yes, I I have a distinct memory of it being announced in 2014 Um, with a budget that exceeded the total budget of what... Sunak is now proposing to give to all of these things put together. So the electrification back then yeah. was going to be thirty-eight billion. But they're not—they're they're not mutually exclusive. It was these two things were both part of improving our national infrastructure and to make us competitive uh, internationally. Um, one of the big—and it's slightly tedious. This is why no politician talks about it on stage. But one of the big problems is freight. You literally run out of enough time and space on the railway to run everything we need to run. It, passenger rail um, and freight on top of that. Mm. And the extra capacity that HS2 was going to create would would mean that we were more economically competitive, able to move things around the country. This this government that's apparently so committed to enterprise and, and business is now stymieing those who want to use freight as part of their um, business expansion. Mm. Also, we're now, by cancelling this, we are way behind uh, most neighbouring European countries on high speed. This was our big kind of catch-up project and we've just decided to drop it. And just before I came in to record mm. this, I noted that actually he's not obviously not only just scrapped the Manchester leg, he's also scrapped the Birmingham to Crewe leg, which has already been an, through Parliament and received yeah. royal assent. Yeah. So, I was was pointing that out because it seems to me to raise a separate question of exactly where does sovereignty lie Mm -hmm. if something that is actually embedded in statute um, can just be cancelled on a whim at Tory conference without any impact assessment, any consultation, any parliamentary scrutiny. Maybe the, the... roundabout under the Isle of Man or the bridge to Ireland <laughs> will, will help with capacity or it's phenomenal. the Thames Estuary I mean, so, Airport. Some of the extra things that he's describing, such as uh, well, we're going to put this money into, for example, the tram link to Manchester Airport, great for the north. That tram link's been open for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they had to issue a supplementary tweet from Number Ten saying some of these projects. <laughs> <laughs> you may have heard of may... them before. So the reaction—I don't—I don't want to call it mixed. <laughs> it consisted of people who were openly livid, and people putting a brave face on it while updating their CV. It seemed to me, 
Um, here's what David Cameron tweeted, and I think it's important to put it on record in full. Today's decision on HS2 is the wrong one. It will help to fuel the views of those who argue that we can no longer think or act for the long term as a country, that we are heading in the wrong direction. HS2 was about investing in, in the long term, bringing the country together, ensuring a more balanced economy and delivering the northern powerhouse. We achieved historic cross-party support with extensive buy-in from city and local authority leaders across the Midlands and north of England. Today's announcement throws away 15 years of cross-party consensus sustained over six administrations and will make it much harder to build consensus for any future long-term projects. All across the world, we see transformative long-term infrastructure projects completed or underway. They show countries on the rise, building for future generations, thinking big and getting things done. I regret this decision, and in years to come, I suspect many will look back at today's announcement and wonder how this once-in-a-generation opportunity was lost. Hannah, they seem to love it in the main hall. What, what am I and seemingly everyone else, including the former prime minister, missing? Is the, is the retail offer of this actually great? Does it allow people to go to the constituency and say, ah, who cares about HS2? We're fixing your potholes. Honestly, I think this is part of it. There are a lot of people who were affected, and because it's such a, a large swathe of the country, there are a lot of conservative-minded people who vote for their local MP in often rural areas who didn't want the disruption to their local communities, who've seen effect effect of their house prices, obviously such an important part of the Tory mm. vote, um, and who it, it's a very selfish perspective. It's a short-term perspective. It's, it's a selfish decision, and, and there is there are votes to be won. So those uh, those MPs who are cheering in the hall think that they now have a greater chance of re-election. Simple as that. So I'm deeply disappointed. The rail industry is deeply disappointed. Um, I think as a country we should all feel let down. Luke, what was your main takeaway from that speech? Was it full of long-term decisions for a brighter future? I think it's that... Um... Eric Morecambe quote, wasn't it? It was sort of uh, all the right notes, but not necessarily in the right order. Because I think that there's no doubt that there were a series of sort of what you call red meat policies mm. in that speech, yep. which will sit well with the public. So, um, you know, we've heard lots of politicians say it, but, you know, life means life. Um, whatever you think about that, like will be popular with yeah, the yeah. public. The smoking um, ban introducing that. Uh, ban where younger generations will never be able to buy cigarettes, I think, will appeal to people. But then... The Although problem, how it's policed is... And we're going to have this slight oddity at some of, point. Yeah, of, going you know, to the news yeah, agents yeah. in your 50s and going, exactly. you don't quite look 52, you look more like 51 to me. Anyway. Exactly. But, but I think on the face of it, that will be uh, popular. But then a big part of the problem, I think, with HS2 is leaving aside the policy merits is the fact that it was allowed to dominate the conference agenda. And there is no doubt that actually lots of what they, you know, if it was a straight fight between HS2 and the other improvements they announced today, lots of people would back mm. those other improvements because mm -hmm. they're thinking, as you say, entirely locally. And if the announcement had been handled if the more professionally, I think. The problem is, I think what they've missed is basic voter psychology, which is it is always harder to take something away than to promise something new. There's another element, which is, you know, when we do focus groups, the public are really cynical about jam tomorrow arguments mm -hmm. now. They feel, you know, I mean, let's say some of these are reannouncements. They feel they've been promised and promised and mm -hmm. promised, and yet it doesn't add up. So I think that's the risk to them. And then I think there's, you know, there's this interesting pitch which Rishi Sunak is trying to make to the country, which is he's now the change candidate. And look, we did a poll a couple of weeks ago and found that 75% of the country uh, wanted a change of government. They don't all want Labour, obviously, but you can see why he's pitching himself as a change candidate. The question that I have is whether Rishi Sunak can do that. You can see why Boris was able to do it. He was able to say, look, I'm not a traditional politician. Um, I'm going to get Brexit done. Yeah, there was the break of Brexit. There was that the was break key, of Brexit. It? I'm going to do this levelling up. Whereas Rishi Sunak, however he presents himself, looks and feels a lot more like the Conservative Party of the past 13 years. And so I think it's going to be really hard to convince the public. And in fact, on the way here, I was looking at a YouGov poll where it was something like 69% to 13% said he was more of the same. 
campaign. So I think he's going to really struggle to own that agenda. You, you see, I found that pitch quite surreal. Um, is there genuinely an audience out there that would probably think, yes, what we need is a sort of quick costume change by the, the same government that's been in charge for the last it half. felt to me that that was more, the next speech was more the sort of speech that was aimed at comment pages mm. than the public at large. Because again, you go back to 2019 um, and look at Corbyn's manifesto, there were lots of policies which were individually quite popular. And I think maybe some of the slowing down on net zero might be popular with certain groups. Some of the, the scrapping of the second leg of HS2 would be popular with some people. But taken together, I think the tone is what's going to influence politics much more. And I think what the public will have heard is, we're not that serious about our climate stuff. We're not going to deliver on this project that we've been promising to deliver for a long time. And so I think that's going to be the big impact. And I think I wonder whether number 10 is making the classic mistake of reading individual polls on policies and thinking this is what we must do rather than taking a step yeah. back and thinking yeah. what's the mood music that this is presenting? Um, I think that's actually a very astute observation. Um Mad people in the hall cheered long and enthusiastically. <laughs> the junking of a central pledge and its replacement with 50 smaller pledges that a cynical public will think will also not be delivered. Because its central argument is, we mean it this time, yeah. honestly. <laughs> um, Pinky promise. <laughs> I mean, has Sunak actually hit on something? Since there is no time between now and the election to actually do anything, all he can do is just promise a bunch of stuff. Yeah, it was. I just found the whole speech quite surreal, really, and quite yes, surreal is the word I keep coming back. It just felt like it was from a different world and uh, quite deluded and quite grandiose as well. Of like, I've got. I've, it's almost like he'd been elected with a massive majority, and here yeah. am I. 20, here's my 25-year plan to how <laughs> to transform the country. And it's like you've got probably less than a year left. And also you were never elected as a, you know, candidate by the whole public. And 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 also your party don't really like you. And it's sort of this weird, it, he did feel quite deluded. And also having, like, having his wife introducing him, it felt very sort of presidential and very un, sort of unusual. I mean, there's a King's speech coming up. And I kept thinking... <laughs> What of that smorgasbord of things that you just promised yeah. are you going to put in that legislative program for the next few months? And what are you going to leave out? Yeah. And isn't everyone going to say, hold on it? a moment? <laughs> um, yeah. And, and for me, also, the thing that really struck me was how much he wrapped himself in Thatcher. There were several references to Thatcher that he was the pharmacist's son and she was the grocer's daughter. And there was a sort of link to that. And and he mentioned her a few times. And he kept talking about, you know, 30 years has been the, you know, there's been the amount of time since things have went wrong. And that's roughly when Thatcher left office and things. It just felt very strange and very sort of back to the future. Yeah, the only other leader he name-checked was Ian Duncan Smith. Yeah, and that, actually, that, Ian Duncan I mean, Smith... What are you doing? It had, it had a slight like um, echo to me of, the, of his famous, you know, the quiet man is turning up the volume mm. speech mm. where he turned up and he had to make a big speech and it didn't really... I, I wanted to ask you about that, actually, as a performer, because there was a lot of talk before the speech that Sunak really needed to deliver an extraordinary address, especially mm. after that sort of barnstormer from Braveman, which we're going to talk about the day before. Um, in terms of delivery, do you think he managed to find his inner Churchill? No. Um, Not even no. Carol Churchill? <laughs> <laughs> his, his inner Churchill the dog? I don't know. I mean, I, I, I thought I always find his delivery incredibly irritating. It's sort of a weird mix of smug and peevish. He's always, it's like he's talking to a child yes, like an audience of children it, yeah. and yeah but it wasn't as frightening as Brovman's speech but it had just as much poison in it there was a lot of lot of dog whistling there were mm. so many dog whistles I thought he was going to enter Crufts at one point <laughs> I just and it felt like you know Brovman was being used by the party to sort of say the most insane things most right-wing things possible and then he was there going well I don't I don't agree with necessarily everything but basically all of it if uh, if, if things don't go well and there's just these weird references to things like um we said 
there's always a voice telling me, don't t- talk about family. <laughs> things you say who is that What's voice the other is this voice in the room with us now what, rishi what is going um, on i have to say the section on trans rights i thought was the most offensive that anyone has put it during this com- conference even from the fringes it was just very unnuanced i mean i think that was the whole thing was there was no complexity no nuance allowed it was and he talked about common sense destroying um sort of other arguments and stuff and it yeah exactly it just felt very very sort of one note very much this is what we're going for and it's it's the gb news effect Mm. and it felt inauthentic for him Luke, um, on that Suella Braverman incendiary speech the day before, in one of the maddest sections, she claimed that human rights and international treaties are luxury beliefs, that only the very rich with nannies and migrant gardeners and second homes in France can afford. And then she claimed that this is basically the profile of typical Labour supporters. Is there demographic support for this? Well, it's interesting. We have uh, a model that we've developed, um, which basically splits the country into seven segments, ranging mm. from very progressive voters who I think she may have been referring to, you know, sort of generally progressive graduates, right through to backbone conservatives as a group of red wall voters, uh, blue wall voters. And what's interesting is uh, we did some research in the run-up to the conferences, uh, and Labour isn't just uh, managing to match what the Tories did in 2019 and win four of the seven. So they're actually ahead in six of the seven segments at the moment. And that spans so she's right sort across. Of right. Well, she's <laughs> because like, everyone is a Labour group. <laughs> there, is, there, is, there is one one group still um, uh, where more people favour the Conservatives. The group is called Backbone Conservatives. Um, so you might expect <laughs> well, that if they, if they lost, uh, <laughs> yeah, if they lost yeah. them. But the others, and it includes, and what's really interesting is the extent to which that group who presumably Suella Braverman was trying to appeal to the sort of red wall voter group, the extent to which they have swung back to the Labour Party is really great. It's much more mm. actually than more liberal voters uh, in the blue wall. And when we do focus groups, they say, look, I gave it a shot, voted uh, Conservative in 2019, but now I'm going back uh, mm. there. So I think it is it is a total misunderstanding of Labour's electoral coalition uh, to say that they are the sort of wealthy graduate class. It's a very broad coalition that might pose challenges to Labour if they get into government, as sure. you know, as this government's yeah, yeah. found. It is very hard to keep a broad coalition together. Um, and I also think a lot of the discussions, um, you know, discussions about kind of you know human rights, luxury beliefs. There was, there was something about woke science um, at one point. <laughs> it, it seemed. I think the bigger danger, actually, for the conservatives and some of this messaging is it's very online. Mm. And I can tell you, I have never done a yeah, focus yeah. group where someone's talked about woke science yeah. or human rights being luxury beliefs uh, anywhere in the country. And so. I think this, there's this danger that, yes, the language is incendiary and there are reasons to be worried there. But I think from a political perspective, it's like they're talking to quite a niche group of Twitter activists rather than trying to sell a message which genuinely appeals to the country. I can tell you, the country are worried about cost of living, the NHS. They are the two things which dominate. Isn't it Twitter and GB News, basically? Yeah. Those are the two... We, and, and this is, if anything, this was the GB News conference. But I, I, what I find interesting is that there's a pattern emerging where you see them making, weirdly, a lot of the mistakes of Corbynism. They're not defending their past record at all, not even attempting to. They are promising far too much. There's sort of an abundance of small promises that no one will be able to retain. There's not a central offering. And the third thing is that they do seem to take their lead from what people on Twitter are telling them. And... um, Braverman claimed we're the only party that can take effective action to stop immigration because Labour will do what Labour always does, open our borders. I mean, if you look at the numbers, this is just factually nonsense. But she's leaning into a perception that a lot of people may already have, which makes it easier. Do you think she can reclaim the mantle of tough on immigration despite the numbers? Or... Do people for whom this is a big issue 
keep an eye on the actual figures. If this is a massive issue for you, then you it will be a topic that you're knowledgeable about, right? And, and you can understand why the Conservatives are worried about this, because for the first time in basically as long as I can remember, uh, Labour are actually ahead of the Conservatives on who's trusted on immigration and in our recent polling, ahead on who's trusted specifically mm. on small boats. Now, you would imagine, so, so the Conservative Party feel, and Suella feels it most of all, I think, that they've got to do more running on this. But what you tend to find is they make ever tougher promises and then the public, and there are, you know, I should say it is an issue which you know, a good chunk of the public do um, care about it. But then the public see, as you say, the numbers aren't changing, the crossings aren't stopping, and it makes them more frustrated. And they say, well, either I'm going to go to Labour, stay at home, or go to a party like Reform UK. Yeah. Now, what I don't know is, you know, if we're in November, the Supreme Court rules that, you know, it is okay for flights to go and flights take off next year, whether that changes the dynamics there at all. And people say, okay, they did what they said, again, regardless of what uh, you think about the policy. That may change things. But again, I think there's a danger that they've overpromised there because we oh, know even completely. if that's a even if Rwanda danger. works, it is going to be a tiny mm, number. That is the big danger, right? Um, that they are allowed to fly people to Rwanda. They fly five hundred people to Rwanda, and then next year the weather is very good, and suddenly numbers are up. Yeah, and, and then, also the imagery of it. So, flight taking off from Heathrow isn't much of a picture, um, but boats arriving and people being shepherded off them and rescued by lifeguards is 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 good imagery. So it yeah, gets I mean, all over the TV. I, it's on, and so people visibly see they don't see the signs of departures; they see the pictures of arrivals. And, and my guess would be the first few stories of people being mistreated in Rwanda yeah. would be only a couple of months behind. So, um, Matt. Imagine, Braveman said, what would happen if Starmer was prime minister? The whole country would go woke, guided by principles of inclusion, equity, and diversity. <laughs> I Good <know>. God. Patooing. <laughs> Is there genuinely an audience out there who hear inclusion or equity and think, no, none of that? I mean, I think there is an audience. United Federation of Planets, not on my watch. Yeah, that is the the Twitter audience. It's the GB News audience. It's the the strong backbone conservative section of the po population. Um, I mean, my favorite. I just have to mention my favorite moment in Sweller's speech. It was when just literally as she said the words, when she was talking about woke people attacking things. She said, those who fail to conform are persecuted. At the exact moment that someone was forced to <laughs> Ejected. leave the speech because he was expressing a different view to her yeah. on LGBTQ The chair issues. of the Conservative yeah, exactly. not, Assembly. Not, it wasn't just Stop Oil. No, it was it a guy, wasn't. You know, yeah. Someone yeah. Who, was, who was just fairly quietly saying, this is horrible. Rubbish. Um, this is rubbish. Sort of this is nonsense. Rubbish. Yeah, it was just pure undiluted populism from her from beginning mm. to end, really. And it, yeah, it definitely has an audience, but I don't think it's an audience. It's basically, it was written for the front page of the Daily Mail, which is where it ended up. She was also pictured standing on a blind man's guide dog's tail. <laughs> I think I get her a bump in the polls. I think she should guide lean dogs in. Are woke. Yeah, she should lean into the sort of Cruella nickname yeah, yeah. <laughs> and just turn up at the next event with a guide dog <laughs> coat. <laughs> Hannah Tuesday's Times, meanwhile, had a big picture of Kemi Badenoch on the cover after Politico reported that she had secret talks with Rupert Murdoch. Um, if certain newspapers and media outlets begin to take sides in the leadership contest to come, how will that affect their ability to support Sunak in the coming election? Because that that does well slightly not compute for me. Yeah, I think well, there's two things going on. One is the infighting makes great stories. You know, you get all these whispers and rumours and back, back room conversations and a source told me and it makes good copy. So they're going to chase all those stories, nice photographs of the women involved as well. Um, bluntly, they always make the front page. Um, actually, I think we're rushing to assume that we're going to see, when it comes to it next year, an overwhelming uh, support from those titles. We're talking about Daily Mail, Times and so on. For Sunak, there's already clear movement towards um, a kind of softening of perspective on Starmer. Mm. Once the election campaign is fully underway, 
I would be surprised if you don't see, um, if, if not outright backing as they got, as Blair got in 97, um, from, uh, you know, something that's a little bit more of a hint of mm. the country needs to change. Certainly from what I've heard from people who work at the Times, they've been seeing a change in the editorial strategy mm. around how Starmer is reported. It's not just a full-on attack mode anymore. Mm. So this is a realisation that most likely this is government policy in the next government, so we need to have a serious look at it. We need to look at it like adults. And so that is changing, actually, even in the mail. Even in the mail, not on the front page, yeah. but yeah, in yeah, the yeah. kind of detailed politics coverage. So it's it's don't assume they're all yeah. going to be processed. I mean, Tuesday that. morning, Liz Truss was across the front page of the Telegraph, apparently mobbed by supporters at her <laughs> rally. And the growth group has sixty MPs behind it. She was signing copies of that mini budget. I mean, that's going to be worth something I mean, eventually, though, isn't it? That, I don't blame me, those people. But that, to me, is really genuinely quite unhinged. There's something just quite weird about that. Um, Luke, Nigel Farage, n never one to miss out on a scrap of attention if he can get it, uh, also wrote in The Telegraph on Monday that he agrees with Liz Truss 100% before dancing the night away with Priti Patel. Rishi Sunak then didn't rule out Farage re rejoining the Tories. What is going on here, do you think? Is that a real thing or is it just are they circling each other? Well, I think one of the challenges which um, the Conservatives have is that obviously they've got a group of people who have left them and they have switched directly to Labour. And they're going to be very hard to win back. There's another group that you see who've switched from conservative to saying they don't know. And actually, it was that group in 1997 who made Labour's victory so big because they were basically conservatives who sat on their hands. Mm. They didn't go out and vote. And when you look at this group, we've dug into them quite a lot. Actually, quite a good chunk of that vote are actually quite right-wing voters. I think a bit of this is a play into that this is how we bring them home. We show you know, we yeah. are more socially conservative. We're a bit more kind of uh, Farageist. The difficulty, of course, with that is there's another chunk of people who don't know who are more liberal. And certainly the conservative to Labour switchers are definitely not going to be wowed back by yeah, yeah. an appeal to Nigel Farage. So it seems to me it's more a strategy to getting to 250 seats and avoiding a 1997-style wipeout than it is a strategy to it's get a to a majority. You know, a party that is going to win a majority does not flirt with Nigel Farage. And it's interesting. I saw Sam Coates at Sky sort of making the comparison between uh, when Corbyn took over Labour. Lots of these kind of unsavoury characters who've been sort of banished from the party yeah. were drifted, were, were drifted back. back in. And I wonder if we're starting to see a bit of the yeah. same thing yeah. Uh, now, or at least there's a risk of it. Uh, Matt, Michael Gove vowed to stop Labour from taking our fields, meadows and forests away from our children. This must be a policy that I missed. Mm -hmm. You add this to Sunak scrapping the seven bins that never existed. <laughs> Mark Harper warning against sinister Starmer, limiting how many times you can go to the shops. Uh, and Claire Coutinho railing against Labour's meat tax. Are we entering an entirely new Trumpian era where politicians will just look into the camera and just make shit up? Um, yeah, I think so. Yeah, um, I think basically... Are we prepared for it? Um, no, I mean, I think it's, it's, you know, add that to deep fakes and it's going to be a very exciting election, I think, because you just have um, Tories. Essentially, it seems to be that they saw that the ULEZ strategy kind of worked in Uxbridge, oh. but they don't have ULEZ all around the country and ULEZ is a very specific issue in that specific place. So they just thought, well, we'll just make up other versions of that. Um, so we're just going to, you know, guaranteed next Next time there's uh, sort of a party political broadcast, it'll be, you know, Labour are going to ban meat. Uh, they're going to scrap holidays, uh, force people to wear special overalls, replace Midsummer Murders with Ken Loach. You know, just like wh whatever the worst thing that people can think of. And <laughs> none of it will be true. And, and it feels to me like it's a version of that strategy um, that was, I can't remember who said it in, in America, but the thing about, you, you know, you don't, you don't, they don't have to agree that that's what they were doing. You just want to get them to deny it. And it's that thing that... The phrase meat tax is now in the ether. People are talking about it. And even though it's not true, 
people, there's going to be a, a few sort of, uh, you know, low information voters or whatever who are going to hear that and go, oh, maybe meat taxes were a thing. Oh, that's good that they're not doing that. And it turns out that, you know, scrapping things that never existed could mm. end up being kind of a positive thing for them. Luke, um, the Conservatives' mayoral candidate for London, Susan Hall, is an oddball to say the least. Her latest attack line was that Jewish people don't feel safe under Sadiq Khan, to which the Board of Deputies replied, wind your neck in. How much of a litmus test could that election be for the Tories' chances across the country? And might they combine them? Because I've also heard little whispers that if they go for the general election in May, then they can make ULES a sort of wider country issue. What what do you think? Well, I think it's it's interesting that um, if you look at the polling, um, you'd expect in Labour London that Sadiq Khan would be much further ahead, particularly given, I think it's fair to say that Susan Hall wasn't the first choice of many Conservatives. It looked like that was a leadership contest set yeah. up for Dan Korski uh, to win. And of course, he had to withdraw after some very serious allegations um, that were levelled against uh, him. But it does seem that the race is sort of within kind of you know, three to five points. Interestingly, at the same time next year, you'll have the first election for the mayor of the North East, where Labour face a different difficulty in that Jamie Driscoll is now running as an independent. Yep. And so there's a chance that he splits the vote there and potentially either he, I mean, he could win and there'd be a narrative of, oh, look, Starmer's not sealing the deal, or he lets the Conservatives through in which case Conservatives holding the red wall. So what I think is that there is a chance come those elections that there are two totemic mayoralities mm -hmm. that Labour actually lose or are run very close, which is then, you know, gives a sort of spring in Boost, the step yeah. to Rishi Sunak. So that's why I don't think he'll do it at the same time. I think they'll wait until those elections um, have happened and with the hope that they get a boost. And of course, and, and I do think, you know, this is uh, this was a regrettable move. They changed the electoral system for those mm. Um, mm. mayoral elections. Mm. So it's now first past the post. Yeah. So actually, um, if there is a split on the left in London, there's obviously a split in the northeast. It's much easier for the Conservatives mm. to win on sort of 30% of the vote than it would have been under the old system where you picked a second choice. And if your first choice didn't get through, your second choice then transferred. Mm. Mm. I mean, you talked about cynicism, but I think that was one of the most cynical political moves in the last few years, changing that mm. voting system, you know, in a, in a situation where we're, there is a general sense that, that voting reform is a good idea and that first past post is very, quite outdated. To go back to that for London does feel phenomenally cynical. Mm. Hannah, finally, for, for a rebranding exam, I mean, this was meant to be a big reset. Um, a relaunch for Sunak. But for a rebranding exercise to work, the new brand has to cohere with a new product. Mm. Revealing the new tagline, long-term decisions for a brighter future, the day after pulling back from net zero, standing in front of it at conference while cancelling HS2, it just seems the opposite of that, and I don't understand what the thinking is. Is it that... The advertising can be so powerful, it can literally convince people that the opposite of what is happening is happening. Or I mean, I think, so I think there are possibly two policies that he announced in this whole speech that could arguably fit into that tag. Right. The smoking one, obviously, yep. and also the replacement of A-levels and T-levels with this new kind of qualification for the future. Sure. I don't know whether I'm pro that or against it. I haven't really thought about it in any detail, but it's definitely a kind of visionary idea for like the future of education. But everything else is just the same as you. I mean, isn't it baccalaureate reheated? I I, 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 well, I haven't looked at the details, so I'm yeah, not sure. It did sound a bit like that. It, it um, sounded a bit like Gove's yeah, idea. Just, isn't it? Isn't education a devolved issue anyway? So calling it yeah. the Great British... Yeah. Um, well, qualification means that it won't be yeah, relevant in Scotland and Wales point. anyway. Yeah, that is branding nothing more. But um, but everything else in this speech was just politics as usual, short termism, all the usual thing about I'll just say anything to win the next election. So what is their thinking about this idea? I think it's I wonder, do you think they finally realise that some of their short termism is actually affecting their voters' children to the point where it could affect 
their ability to be re-elected. Maybe. So they're really going for the over 50, but they've got to keep the over 50 vote. They're, they're, they're really screwed if they let any of that go. So the focus is really on securing that to not have complete wipeout. So maybe this kind of long-term, talking about the long-term and the planning for the future, the children, the grandchildren, is about trying to recapture that, like, we do actually care about your kids, even though we're cancelling HS2, and even though we are going to make sure we protect your house price at the, ex at the expense of your children having a secure home, we have noticed that you're bothered about your son or daughter. I think the That's where I, I think it comes from. Yeah, I think the thing I'd just point out is that long-term decisions for a brighter future, brighter can mean on fire. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, as Terry Pratchett used to say, sometimes the light at the end of the tunnel is a flamethrower. Good news, your favourite history nerds are back. Yes, we at We Are History have been trawling the history shelves of our local bookshops. Well... I have, John. You mostly went around finding your books and moving them to the front of the displays. If I can find them, it's a bonus. We are ready to tell you all about what we've learned, from the revolting French to some revolting women. Via some Brits abroad and a foul-mouthed Irishman. So, download We Are History. Our laughable attempt at a silly history podcast. With me, John O'Farrell. And me, Angela Barnes. Wherever you get your podcasts. Now, new research from Maureen Common in the UCL Policy Lab is calling for a respect reset in British politics. Over 4,000 people were polled on their attitudes to politicians, different professions, and our national institutions across the axis of class, wealth, and much more. It's respect that is valued higher among politicians that, than whether they understand business or even if they have fresh ideas for the country. The Conservatives have a net respectability score of minus 39, while Labour are in the heady heights of a plus one net positive rating. To feel more respected by politicians, the public want their contributions to be recognised and for their elected representatives to demonstrate empathy, authenticity and honesty. We will discuss whether those three things are compatible. Suela, are you writing any of this down? Um, Luke, a lot of these results are split across the familiar groupings of political identity from progressive activists to disengaged traditionalists. Are there demographics shifting more in the modern age and are there new ones where people are more politically engaged on average? I don't think the shift is one around engagement, actually. And part of the reason that we use this model is that Obviously, the country is having quite significant demographic shifts um, and will continue to do so. We have an aging population. But what's interesting about those uh, segments is that they're based on social psychology. So they're based on rather than looking just at what people think, it allows you to get a bit under the skin of why are they thinking it. So mm -hmm. you know, the progressive activists, a group who are really concerned about injustice, they're very engaged, they're very online um, group. I mean, they're staying at about kind of 12 percent of the population. I think it's quite interesting to look at those disengaged groups in particular who there's one more left-leaning one, one more right-leaning one, because they're the group who tend not to get involved in politics, but when they roar, they really roar. And, of course, we saw them particularly roar during the Brexit referendum. Mm -hmm. It was that sort of more disengaged traditionalist group who said, I've had enough, my community's been neglected, politicians don't listen to me. I'm going to you know, stick two fingers up to the establishment if I can say that. And so that's what I think is, is interesting. There's no doubt the progressive engaged group is younger, but then as people get older, they, te they tend to shift and some people tune out. Two of the most respectable attributes a politician can have are a working class parent, 35% approval, and a parent who works in the NHS, which is 22% approval, clean sweep for Starmer. Um, only 10% approve of Starmer's past as a prosecutor, however. Which do you think will be the most important of his attributes come the election? What will win out? So... What was so interesting about this research was that um, there was this real sense that we misaligned respect in this country, yeah. that the wrong people get respect, or not even the wrong people get respect, 
but we don't give respect to enough people. And particular, I think, for lots of people, the pandemic was a moment when they realised that actually, you know, being a graduate or having lots of wealth, you know, that's not what what is keeping the show on the road uh, in the country. It was key workers. It was delivery drivers. It was the NHS, but it was also Postal. yeah, exactly, exactly, and also putting their health at risk. And I think for many, yeah, you saw we saw in the research, it was like an aha moment, and they sort of think, well, we realise this. Why don't our politicians realise mm. this and give you know those groups the respect they deserve? And so I think what's interesting for Starmer is the fact that actually he does have that background. He's got family who have worked in the NHS. And I think he's got an opportunity to lean into that with the public, to convince them he gets the respect um, agenda. He does respect people who come from different backgrounds. But what's interesting is the public don't know that. Um, you know, you know, all all of us yeah, who yeah. love politics are used to the story of you know being the son of a toolmaker, him talking about his mum and about his uh, his wife. The public don't because you know, they don't pay that much attention to politics. And I think there is an opportunity for him to really lean into that and to dispel a bit of the circular Starmer mm. uh, stuff. You know, again, in our focus groups, the number of people who think that's a hereditary title. Well, they think he was, yeah. and I, I had someone say to me in a focus group, well, why doesn't he do what Tony Benn did if he really cares and get rid of it? You know, because Tony <laughs> Benn gave yeah, up yeah. his hereditary period. It, it was noticeable in the Tory conference that they kept referring to him as Sakir, Sakir, yeah, Sakir all the way through. Yeah, and lefty lawyer, of course, is the other yeah. aspect that they emphasise. Um, now, when it comes to institutions, charities and the NHS score very high respect and high trust. While low respect and low trust goes to big business and the Conservative Party. So very pertinent for you. How can institutions move up the scale? What can they do? And what do they do to plummet? Yeah, I think um, it's a really good question. I think you need to learn from those institutions which are high trust and high respect. You know, I think with charities, with the NHS, firstly, it's that sense, rightly so, that they care and genuinely engage. But I think more than that, what you get is they uphold their end of the social contract. Uh, and you mentioned big business, one of the lowest scoring groups. There is a real sense amongst the public that basically since the financial crash, um, business hasn't upheld its end of the social contract. They yeah. might talk a good game on things like so, you know, corporate social responsibility, but actually they neglect what the public very clearly think of their top two key jobs, treating their employees well and treating their customers well mm. as well. And there's a sense that, no, I mean, I remember in, again, in focus groups, the angriest I've seen people in the past year was when there was a sense there wasn't going to be a proper windfall tax because people would say there are businesses that are profiting mm. off our misery and not yeah. paying back, you know, not being there. So I think it's I think it's upholding your end of the bargain. Conservative Party clearly struggling because there's this sense that actually what's happened over the past few years, both the internal politics, but also the response to the cost of living crisis hasn't been respecting ordinary people. But if I must, uh, I must add one extra point. One of the most interesting findings from the research was that after the NHS, the most trusted institution in uh, that we polled, we polled a, a whole range, was the National Trust. And it's really interesting, <laughs> given the attacks on the National yeah. Trust over the past year, haven't certainly haven't dented uh, public approval. And there's attacks on them for going woke, that they've lost. Buzz. Actually not. And again, when you dig into this uh, in the qualitative research with the public and talk about things like retain and explain, the public say, well, surely that's the right thing, right? You're not, you know, lots of the public don't like things being torn down. But they also want to know about history warts and all. And they sort of think the National Trust has got it right. And again, what I thought was interesting, that is so different from the debate about the National Trust, yeah. where you'd think that the public are about and, and, to... And so tin-eared to go up against, so it, oh. like the government going, butting against such institutions or really popular like England footballers. And you just think, mm. have you not learned anything. This is not a fight you can win. People don't like you. That's the bottom yeah. line. Well, and the Mar Marcus Rashford, right? That yeah. was the that was the key. And again, 
one of the reasons Marcus Rashford cut through so much of the public was because he embodied that respect agenda. Because people know that actually he's someone who's experienced yeah, yeah. what it's yeah. like, um, you know, not to have money. You know, obviously has quite a lot of money. He's authentic. He cares. Versus, you know, at the time, Gavin Williams in the education secretary. People are like, why would we not listen to the person with the lived experience rather than the politician? It, what's interesting is that the public like you, we said, rate a working-class background. And they also think that people who are working-class or who have a regional accent or who come from an ethnic minority background or who are unemployed, they're, they're taken much less seriously by those in power than those who are rich and went to university or a private school and are wealthy, all of that. So why does the, the this country so often vote for exactly that kind of leader? Because that's the bit that doesn't compute. Well, I think one of the things which you know, the public would say is because we don't get presented with other options. And what I always find interesting is we often ask people, you know, who's a politician you think's got your back or understands ordinary people? And, you know, I'm, I'm not going to lie, people struggle. Uh, when we ask them that. But two, three names that most often uh, come up are Andy Burnham, yeah. um, Angela Rayner, and Mari Black, say. if we do groups yeah, yeah. in Scotland. Yeah. And it's because they're authentic politicians. They've got genuine experience of, you know, ordinary people's struggles. Who and look they and want sound like normal like people. Like, they exactly. look and sound like exactly. normal people. So I think Starmer, with his background working with Angela Rayner, who obviously has, you know, the life experience and can relate much more to a different uh, range of people, have a real opportunity to own this respect agenda. Mm. And I hope going into Labour conference, they talk about it a lot more because they've clearly got an advantage over the Conservatives on it. They just need to lean into it and be a bit more self-confident. Mm. Just to finish, you know, we were discussing those qualities right at the top and I said, I'm not sure they're compatible. Authenticity, honesty, and also, you know, presenting in a way that doesn't antagonise people. Is there a trade-off there that if you devote yourself to a, a political career, you basically need to shut off the more relatable or respectable parts of your personality? Because actually they get you in trouble. They, they do. They get you in trouble in, in Westminster. I'm, I don't think they get you into that much trouble actually with the public uh, at large. And even, you know, Gillian Keegan's um, comments, we played them to yeah. a, a focus group in mid-beds. And people said, do you know what? I quite like the fact that uh, she said what she thought. You know, I don't agree with her. And, you know, I think the... Uh, you know, people uh, loathe to give um, politicians gratitude for a job not very well done. But um, they did sort of say, well, you know what, I'm, at least she's told us what she thinks. So I actually think there is a prize for owning that authenticity. And I actually do think they go hand in hand because it's both being relatable and being yourself. But also, it goes back to our earlier decision, uh, discussion, not sugarcoating things, pretending everything's going to be easy, mm. like levelling about hard choices. I think we infantilise the public and that shows totally disrespect agree, yeah. too. We've reached the end of the show. We're not going to do Under the Radar or But Your Emails this week because it's been a packed conference and I think our listeners will want us to give full time to that. So thanks to Matt Green. Thank you. To Hannah Fern. Thank you. And to our guest Luke Trill. Thank you. Stay tuned for the extra bit after Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop and the traditional thank you to our army of generous supporters. You too could join them and get the podcast early and without ads, plus lots more. Search Oh God What Now Patreon to find out how to get yours. We'll see you next time. Hello and thanks from me to Andrew Fuller, Dorothy Jenkinson and a returning backer, it's all the rage now, welcome back Reagan O'Driscoll. Hello from me and all the best to Sean Brazier, also returning, welcome back to the pod to Steve Parrington and Louise. And many thanks from me to Alex Godsell, Janet Dawson and another prodigal son back for more, welcome home Nim Chimsky. We'll see you next time. Oh God, What Now was presented by Alex Andreu with Hannah Fern, Matt Green and Luke Trill. It was produced by Podmasters Managing Editor Jacob Jarvis with audio production by me, Robin Lieburn and socials by Jess Harpin. Art is by Jim Parrott, group editor is Andrew Harrison and Oh God, What Now is a Podmasters production. 
Welcome to the Extra Bit, exclusively for Patreon backers. This week, the Musée d'Orsay in Paris has unveiled a new exhibition on Vincent van Gogh, along with virtual reality experiences that allow you to enter the world of his paintings. Through AI, there is an opportunity to talk to the quote-unquote man himself. He sounds very clued up on modern ideas of mental health for someone who died in 1890. Hannah, what's your initial reaction to this sort of thing? Well, my view on this sort of thing has really changed. I used to be immensely snobby about it and think it was pathetic to kind of try and find new ways into classics, like whether it's art or literature or whatever, um, and would have been incredibly dismissive. But something's changed my mind. I took my two kids, who are now three and six, to the Immersive uh, Van Gogh exhibition in London, um, where, for those who haven't seen it, you basically step into these big rooms that project um, the images of the paintings on the wall and they all move and it's all very uh, exciting and um, vivid and my kids loved it and my elder one in particular got really into that was a teaser for the bonus bit of this week's podcast if you'd like a little bit more oh god what now every week without ads and a day early then do yourself a favor and sign up to back us on patreon for as little as three pounds a month you'll also get our exclusive weekly minicast oh god what else every monday morning and some merchandise Thanks for listening and see you next week.